Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Congratulations. Made it through the first day. <clears throat> Usually not a fun time the first day, <clears throat> as I've been hearing little here and there. Um, so I, I have a lot of uh, respect and appreciation that here you are. <clears throat> And I wanted to talk tonight about um, a subject, just following up on something that um, I spoke a bit about last night, that's uh, a key uh, issue when we're doing practice, particularly when we're doing practice uh, in a group like this. And... um, Besides the question that naturally comes up for a lot of people, there's a few questions that come up the first day. Um, What am I doing here? Am I doing it right? And how am I doing compared to everybody else? And I particularly wanted to focus on that, uh, that last one. the tendency of the mind to judge and compare. So I wanted to start out with a favorite passage of mine from a a wonderful book. I highly recommend a a classic, a Dharma classic, um, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. And this is what he has to say. In our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses. Excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. And if it's impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you'll find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. 
Here, how, here, however, there is a misunderstanding about practice. If you think the aim of meditation practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you'll have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If you practice in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you're determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find that the worst horse is often the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing will often find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Comforting? <clears throat> Unless you sit in full lotus and are like a Buddha, in which case don't worry about it, there's hope for you. Yeah. <clears throat> This tendency to um, compare ourselves with others, so common in the meditation, in the practice period of a retreat, um, but it's not bringing in something that's not already there. We have a tendency to compare and judge ourselves against others, or against some kind of imagined ideal, um, and it becomes one of the great obstacles in opening up to things as they really are and seeing the truth about things. <clears throat> the Buddha called this tendency to compare, there is a, a name for it in the teachings, mana, M-A-N-A is the is the name, and it's translated literally as the conceit of I am. The conceit of I am. And when he's talking about conceit, he's not only talking about being better than, that's often the way we think of the word conceit, but in this, um, in this perspective, Conceit is any kind of reifying a sense of self relative to others and seeing yourself as separate and then seeing how you measure up. So the conceit of I am includes not only feeling superior, but also putting ourselves down in relationship to others and even making ourselves equal to others. Any kind of comparing is missing out on the, the deep truth of things that this idea 
idea or ideal that we um, are separate, that we are different, and that we need to uh, be a certain way in order to be okay is really missing the heart of the teachings. I want to read a passage from the Buddha, one of one of this one of the discourses where he says <clears throat> one who thinks oneself equal to others or superior or inferior for that very reason disputes but one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person the notions equal superior or inferior do not exist one who is free from such views there are no ties for one who is delivered by understanding there are no follies such as these but those who grasp after views and philo philosophical opinions such as these they wander about in the world annoying people <clears throat> And I don't have to probably ask you to think too hard on who we annoy most with these ideas and views. <clears throat> it always comes back to me. Have you seen it? Have you seen it today? <clears throat> comes up a, a lot in, uh, in retreat in certain situations. Mm walk into a hall and somebody is sitting like a Buddha statue and say, God, I wish. You know. Or meal times, you walk into the, into the dining room, there you are sitting and eating and somebody across from you is just eating so mindfully, so meticulously. And the mind can go into, it can go either way, it can go, they are so mindful. Or who do they think they are anyway? Yeah. Or you do walking meditation and it's another social situation. And there you are walking. If you're into the, the slow, walk, slow walking model, <clears throat> which I, I hope I um, gave you a little bit of permission to to go at whatever speed works for you. But if there's a lot of slow walkers around, <clears throat> the same thing can say, wow, they are really doing it, you know. Or, oh, you know, what, what's going on inside their head that they've got to look so good, you know. Or if somebody's going fast, you might one period say, gosh, they're just so free. They're just themselves. They're not trying to impress anybody. Or don't they get it? Why don't they slow down? You know? The mind will create anything. Mm -mm. Mm. On one retreat, I saw this comparing. <laughs> I've seen it many, many times. But on one retreat around this, I, I remember I was 
I, I used to really get into slow walking meditation. It can be fun when you slow down and you're just kind of in a particular gear and it can be just fascinating, especially after several weeks of, of doing this kind of practice. And I'd be, I'd be into it and when I'd be all alone, just kind of really getting into, uh, into the practice. And somebody else would come into my, my space and all of a sudden I'd have a very different reason for walking. And I started to name it. I was very much into, into uh, mental noting. And I'd be going, lifting, moving, looking good. <laughs> lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. Yeah. It was very humbling. But there I was. I was just kind of, you know, it's easy to, to see that and to, to track that. And we get all of these messages from our culture. And I have a feeling it's not so different uh, than, than the U.S., although the States is, uh, is probably, as I'm sure, the worst about being number one. You know, that's, what, that's where the real, the tall poppy syndrome comes in. Oh, aren't we so glad that you're number one? No. <laughs> but my, my team is the best. <clears throat> right now they are the best, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> they are. <laughs> uh, or my, um, my city or my class or my background, or my whatever, we're special. And um, it gets very, uh, it's a cause for great suffering. Because how many can be the best? So there's going to be conflict right there. My religion is the best. My meditation practice is the right one. My, my, the Buddha called it, my eye making and my making. That was the term that he used in, in the discourses. <clears throat> my body, either best or worst, you know. My, my mind, when I was in college uh, and I was going through some, some, what I thought, deep thinking, and it was at least when, when I went, it was a kind of uh, badge to see how neurotic you could be, you know. I'm, re I'm more screwed up than you are, you know. Um, we compare on anything. My accomplishments, my shortcomings, my dramas. When does it come up for you? I won't ask you to report, but just reflect inside. Maybe when it's come up, you've seen it maybe today or in your life. Where does it come up? Where do you measure against others and either put yourself superior or inferior or uh, create a story about not being good enough or needing to prove all of that? <clears throat> and like it said in the teachings, this is uh, such an intrinsic habit of, uh, of the mind that we need to 
understand it and work with it and not take it quite so personally. Because it's all, all workable when we understand and see how it operates. Happens, you know, even uh, when you take the Dharma seat, there's still going to be the comparing mind. When I first started teaching, this is many years ago in kind of like the uh, early 80s, and I was, I was very excited to, to, uh, to be teaching, but we'd, in most retreats, like Jill and I are teaching together, and in the larger retreats, there's team teaching where there's um, maybe four or five teachers teaching a large number of people together. In those early retreats, I was teaching with, perhaps some of you are familiar with some of these names, um, Joseph Goldstein was my main teacher. Jack Cornfield, who many people love and, and follow. Sharon Salzberg, who's written lots of books on Metta and is a very well-beloved teacher. And I'd be on the team. And one night, Joseph would get up and <laughs> give the clearest talk, just clear as a bell, just from a very deep place of wisdom, just blow everyone's mind. And then Jack would come and Jack can weave a spell and just kind of mesmerize a crowd. And then Sharon would give a talk and tears would be flowing as she talked about loving kindness and compassion. You know. And then I'd have to go up and give a talk. And I knew if I was sitting in the audience, I'd be saying, get that guy off and get Goldstein back up on there. And it was, it was really humbling. Um, and I, I don't usually add this, but this is coming to mind. And I, I, was, I was having such a hard time uh, at some point that I went to see my other uh, benefactor, mentor, Ramdas, uh, who was very important to me. He wrote a book, Be Here Now, that... Uh, changed my life, and uh, he was he was one of the he was a person who said, "Oh yeah, you should uh, start." Um, when I asked him, "Should I teach?" and he said, "Oh yeah, you can teach and start doing uh, leading uh, weekend retreats, uh, so people get a taste of practice." So he was very supportive, and um, I went to him and I said, "You know, this is so terrible. This comparing mind is just so humbling," and I share with him what I just shared with you. you know, Joseph gets up there or Jack gets up there. And then he said, you know, Joseph Goldstein has already taken. Why don't you just be the best Jamie Barris you can be? In those days, I was called Jamie. Why don't you just be the best Jamie Barris you can be? You might find he's OK. He's not taken yet. <clears throat> it's very a very wonderful and, and powerful advice. But still, it can, come, it can come up even after you've been teaching for years and years. I'll share this, uh, where is it? Share a passage from Ajahn Sumedho, who is um, very well-respected, highly respected, the, the senior Western monastic in the uh, Ajahn Chah lineage. Uh, really, senior Western monastic in Theravadan Buddhism. 
and he talks about his own comparing mind. He says, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice and say, aye, aye, sir, in public in a roll call would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight or nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all of this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you'd get when you'd feel you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho, you give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to ever give another talk again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I'd feel. And fortunately, in Thailand, the people are such that they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. One time, at a ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up until that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain. But three hours, and he knew. Now with Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. And I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies sitting up there. Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at the self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during all the talks over all these years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. So if you see that in yourself, just um, cut yourself a little bit of slack. I want to talk about um, where this comes from and maybe some ways to work with it. It's really, when I look at it, it's rooted in some sense that I'm not enough, that I'm not complete enough, some um, very deep fear of being incomplete and not good enough, or even more, unworthy a very, a very common uh, quality, this feeling of unworthiness. 
And again, this is not just in the meditation on retreat, but you're just seeing how the mind works in, in your life. <clears throat> and if you happen to uh, know that feeling, that quality, or that, that mental perspective, um, this is not only important to know how to work with, but it can become a very important gift that you can work through and understand and have compassion when others see something in you that seems to um, touch them and they say, I have such a self-critic and, and um, an inner judge, um, can you help me? And you can say, yeah. I know what that's like. It's possible. So don't feel discouraged or think that uh, there's no hope for you because, uh, because you see these, these kinds of thoughts. In fact, as uh, Suzuki Roshi was saying about the marrow of Zen, um, I came to this practice myself because I had a lot of internal suffering. I, I really... I didn't like myself at all. And the thought of liking myself, let alone loving myself, just seems so remote. But I was so um, motivated when I first saw my teacher, Joseph, who was saying that first time that I encountered him uh, in 1974, he was saying it's absolutely possible to not be run by your neurotic thoughts. That had never occurred to me as a possibility before, but there was something in the way he said it that I believed him, and I thought, wow, if that's possible, I'm going for it. So you might find, as Suzuki Roshi says, if you have some patterns that, uh, that seem very deep and maybe even insurmountable, you can experience the marrow of practice and really turn it into a gift that you give to others. But let's take a look at, at this tendency and maybe how to work with it. First, this idea of unworthiness. It is a kind of interesting perspective that somehow I'm not worthy of peace or happiness or love, that somehow I'm not good enough. There's a, a beautiful line in um, The Course in Miracles, which is uh, maybe some of you are familiar. The Course in Miracles is this um, Christian uh, body of teachings uh, very, very uh, beautiful teachings. And there's one line in there that says, um, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. I'll say it again. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. 
how can you have a clear, accurate assessment of who you are looking at the filter of comparing yourself to everybody around and not seeing who they see? Because you're the last one to see what shines through you. I went to um, one retreat many years ago. This was a, it was every fall there are these uh, fall retreats, the three month retreats from uh, September to, De to December. Um, Jill has been at IMS many years and has sat three month retreats and supported people as they're going through it. Doing just what we're doing here uh, for three months. And you, you are getting the most challenging part of the three month course, at least the settling, one of the most challenging parts, the settling in period. Uh, it's not three months of every day kind of like this. You start after a while, as I said, to land and it gets very interesting. Anyway, it was um, towards the end of this three month course in 1979, and the Dalai Lama came to the center in Massachusetts to visit. He had just come to the States for the very first time in 1979 in uh, September, and here it was uh, uh, end of November, and he, was, uh, he came by and, uh, to pay his respects and to spend time with the retreatants. It's a great way to end a retreat, to have the Dalai Lama come and, and visit and say a few words. Anyway, in this, uh, this Q&A, um, somebody asked him a question, among many questions. This one guy raised his hand and he said, um, do you have any advice uh, on dealing with self-hatred and unworthiness? And the Dalai Lama, who was with a, his translator, uh, and in those days he, uh, he didn't know nearly as much English as he, as he does now, and uh, the translator told him the question in Tibetan, and he didn't at first understand it. And they went back and forth, self-hatred, unworthiness, and then he finally got the concept of self-hatred and unworthiness. And he looked at this guy and he said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. You imagine the Dalai Lama after two, two and a half months of sitting saying to you, you're wrong. <laughs> but he said it with tremendous love and compassion. And he, he went on to say something like what I got from it, what makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of the universe and somehow you don't belong? It was a really powerful moment uh, for, for everyone, certainly for me. What makes you think you don't belong, that you're not good enough? But from where we're looking, it seems the obvious assessment. We just don't see the truth. So first, it's important to see who you really are. And in, in Buddhist teachings, who you really are, or I should say what you really are, 
is a mind-body process, mental and physical um, processes that come together and form a human being. In the teachings, they are known as the, the five khandas or the five skandhas in Sanskrit. And they are form, this body, that's, one, that's the first one. And the other four have to do with mind. Your whole experience is this body, what it goes through, and feeling, which in this, uh, uh, in this sense, feeling doesn't mean emotions. It means that the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of experience in every moment, it's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's called feeling or Vedana. So there's form, then there's feeling. Is this a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral moment? There's perception, the third skanda, which files new information and um, recognizes or sees something that hasn't been seen before, perception. So. I hold this up, whoops, and this is a bell. You know it's a bell, but then the mind says, oh, it's a relatively big bell. It's a nice sounding bell. It's a round bell. It's a gold bell. And all of those things are just understanding the characteristics of it. So that's form, feeling, perception, mental formations or thoughts that we have, thoughts and emotions, mental fabrications, mental formations. And the fifth skanda is, or kanda is consciousness, a consciousness that knows. That's who we are. We are made up of these five, uh, the uh, translation is aggregate, five um, components, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. That aggregate of perception is what can easily lead to a mental formation of comparing. Oh yes, me, against others. That bell versus the bells that I've, that I like or I don't like. Oh, that's the nicest bell. Not bad, but it's just a slippery slope into ideas and interpretations about things. And particularly when it comes to us, this very being. <clears throat> but we somehow uh, take ownership of this experience of this mind and body. So, for instance, if you are mm, uh, feeling tired, probably as a few people said they, they were sleepy today, there's not often just the experience of, oh, here's tiredness arising, but it's, oh, I'm so, uh, why am I so tired? 
I shouldn't be tired. Or if my stomach is gurgling, stop it. I shouldn't have a gurgling stomach. As if you could control that. You know, maybe there are things you can do to minimize the gurgling, but it's just following its own laws. Or my mind getting caught on um, my high school prom or why somebody, why I reacted the way I, I did when it's just habits, it's all habits. And then we blame ourselves thinking that we should be free of our habits and that's when we compound the problem. In the Buddhist teachings this is called adding a second arrow on top of the first. One arrow is, oh, my, um, I'm feeling uh, a lot of fear here and it's very painful. The second arrow is, I'm so pathetic for all this fear that I'm feeling and then we blame ourselves for what is coming through as if we had control. If you had control to not feel fear, you probably wouldn't feel fear. But it's coming all by itself. And that's seeing the selfless nature of reality. And the interesting thing is that when you see through this, when you see through the comparing mind, and when you see through taking ownership of this body-mind process, then you also get in touch with the beautiful qualities that are your true nature, that shine through you, that you can't even take credit for. They just shine through you naturally. I'll share a couple of passages. This is from a, a Tibetan great master, Nyoshal Kempo Rinpoche. He says, uh, Buddha nature, the essence of awakened enlightenment itself, is present in everyone. Those who recognize their true nature are enlightened. Those who ignore it or overlook it are deluded. There's no way to enlightenment other than by recognizing Buddha nature and authentically identifying it within one's own stream of being. That's the good news. That when you're not caught up in your own misperception of who you are, there is the divine shining through you. Ajahn Sumedho has this beautiful phrase. He, he, he writes it in one of his books. The shining through of the divine. Now, you can't even take credit for that either. And you say, my, my divine is better than yours. My pure awareness A1. It's just awareness shining through you. 
my unconditional love is special. It is, but it's just love shining through, and it's not yours. It's not the the my is the extra piece. So, to see through this this comparing mind, this is really um, uh, the task and the the doorway to freedom. Just seeing what we are, how we are creating this confusion, and um, seeing clearly through it to something more beautiful. One, one teacher, um, one of my teachers, this Tibetan teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a kind of crazy wisdom kind of teacher, he used to say, for those who put themselves down or make themselves small, uh, he said, timidity is just another ego trip. Timidity is just another ego trip. It's an ego trip, not in the usual sense, but it is reifying this sense of self and making us smaller than who we are. But it is an ego-based perspective. And here's a, maybe you've heard this, I pulled it up on my phone. This is from uh, Marianne Williamson. Um, she says, she's a, a, a really... A wonderful wisdom teacher. <clears throat> we ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We're all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So this is the the task, and seeing that comparing mind as humbling as it is, is really a gift when you see, oh, that's what this mind does. Instead of, like I said last night, instead of, oh gosh, look at my mind. Oh, that's what the mind does. Look at that. And when you're not taking it personally, even as painful as it is, you start to get some um, workability with it. So, how to, how to work with the comparing and the judging mind? A few, uh, a few tips that I've found helpful. Mm-hmm. First of all, to recognize the conditioning that has gone into that habit pattern. It's just a habit, a mental habit that's been practiced for a long time. And when you see it as a habit, instead of taking ownership, then it becomes much more understandable. I'll I'll share with you a 
a story about my own seeing this where it was really a powerful, um, it was a watershed moment in my practice. It was on <clears throat> the an early, the first uh, three-month retreat that I sat. And I was, it was another walking meditation um, story. And I was going really slowly. And I just decided I'd see how slowly I could go, just for the fun of it. I was all by myself. And I pretended I was uh, Marcel Marceau, the, the French mime. Just to see, he was amazing. Just you couldn't see him move, but somehow he was moving. And I was going pretty slowly. I wasn't going that slowly, but I just oh, let's just play around. And I was all by myself. In the middle of this, somebody comes into the walking room at the center, and in those who had just come from the outside world onto the retreat, the first two years at the center, they tacked on a two-week retreat at the end of the three-month course. Did you know that? Yeah, they, they only did it for two years, then they thought not such a good idea. You can really feel somebody's energy, right? So there I was doing my crawling, and this person comes in who's kind of got the world in, in, her, in her aura, they're doing, she's doing walking for about two, I wasn't going to stop doing my little game. Okay, I'm going to keep it up. And after about two minutes, she bolts out of the room in what I was sure was the comparing mind. And as she walked past me, bolted past me, um, the thought came to me, wow. I really blew her mind. She must think I'm a great yogi. And then I heard the thought in all its glory. Wow. Aren't I wonderful? It was disgusting. It was like I opened up into this trap door, this dungeon of ego and presentation. And look at me. And aren't I, do you see how good I am? And um, from that slow walking, I became a caged tiger. I started pacing back and forth and saying, what a phony, who do you think you're kidding? You're just all ego, you know, get off it, kid. And I did that for... It was about 10 minutes, just going back and forth. And then the thought occurred to me. I realized, I sensed, the millions and millions of times I had that kind of thought. Look at me. Do you see me? Check it out. Am I good enough? No, I'm not good enough. It was just that I was quiet enough to see it more clearly after all of that sitting, that I saw it in all its glory. And in that moment, when I realized the millions of times I'd practice it, there was one of the first genuine waves of compassion and forgiveness. And I, the words that came to me were, you are really 
doing your best. You are very sincere, and this is going to take a while. And it was just that simple, like really seeing my authentic wanting to wake up and then realizing this is just a deep habit pattern. It's going to take a while. It changed everything. It was much more important than seeing how slow I could go. Uh, and really, that, that has become, that's a milestone in my life. Oh, yes, I really got what it's like to be kind to myself. Mm. So that's one thing, forgiveness and having compassion for the habits that, uh, that you find yourself caught in. A second strategy for working through it is um, compassion. Very much, uh, it's the next step for, for, from forgiveness. One thing is, oh, this is, uh, oh, of course I understand. But then to go the next, the next step, which I contacted, of really being kind with myself and to notice it with great compassion. That's why we do the, the metta practice in the, uh, in the afternoon, because you need that softening, softening and that kind heart to hold it all. And one metta practice that, that, uh, or compassion practice that I found very helpful, I'll, I'll share with you, uh, was my practice for two years with the judging mind. It was my main practice, because I saw uh, I really needed to work with this because I had a and can have a good judging mind, maybe even better than yours. <laughs> and this is what I did for for two years. Uh, the mental noting can be a very powerful practice, and it all uh, depends on the tone of the note, kind of like I. I was saying last night, you can notice and have the judgment right there in the noticing, you know, oh, judging, judging, and then you're just judging the judging. And then you can also bring tremendous kindness to the noticing. So this was my practice for two years. I'll share it with you, my secret teachings. Just imagine seeing yourself uh, coming down or getting lost in a judging thought about yourself or anything. Just try this. Um, close your eyes. Put your hand on your cheek. You can do cheek or heart. For me, for the, to my two years, was my, was my cheek. But you can do heart just as good. And as if you are the kindest, most compassionate, grandma or grandpa or wise being, as you caress yourself, just saying in the kindest tone, silently, judging, judging, like, it's okay, judging, it's all right. And let yourself feel that tenderness. It's just a habit, just judging. Can open your eyes. Could you feel that for a moment? That's how 
I recommend you notice the judging mind. And then every time you notice it that way is a chance to practice compassion. Instead of, oh, there's another judgment. Oh, I get another chance to practice and get in touch with the Kuan Yin or the Buddha inside of me. Oh, judging. That was my main practice. And I, it wasn't like I did this every time. Uh, I did when I'd forget to use that tone. But there's something about actually physically touching yourself in a tender way that reminds you of that. But as you more and more, even when you're sitting, just notice the tone and let the tone come from that kind place, that Kuan Yin or Buddha. Changes everything. If you did nothing else but notice the judging mind with kindness for the week that you're here, it would be a very good use of your time. So that's a second, following up on the first. Forgiveness, compassion. Third is seeing the emptiness of the thought. Your thoughts are as real as you believe them to be or as empty as you see them to be. They're just coming all by themselves. If you had control over your thoughts, you'd probably only have loving, beautiful thoughts, blessing everybody around you, but a few others slip through. You, know, you probably don't say, I could go for some rage right now. It just comes. How about some self-doubt? Yeah, that, that, that'll be good for me. Those thoughts just arise on their own. And for you to take them personally is missing the point. And for you to see how empty they are, they're not you. They just completely come unbidden. Uh, this is where the real freedom is. Joseph Goldstein, my, my teacher, has a very good instruction. He says, if you're bothered and you're sitting in a meditation hall, and you're bothered by your thoughts, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, they are. Maybe you just picked up some radio waves or whatever. But it's a very good one to just lighten up. Hmm, that's an interesting one that came through. <laughs> Try it. It's good. Another... Uh, Another uh, strategy that I highly recommend, having a sense of humor. Makes a big difference as uh, Wavy Gravy. Do you know Wavy Gravy? Is he, is he a figure here? He's a Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Now he was, He's a, an icon in, uh, in the States and um, very funny and, and and socially conscious and uh, spiritually conscious too, as he says, uh, if you can't laugh, it's just not funny. <laughs> and it can get very serious. This stuff can get very, very serious. So having a sense of humor makes a big difference. On this one, one retreat, I was w working with the judging mind, and I tacked on, I used to, um, another strategy I had was noticing, I'd said a, a, a line from the Third Zen Patriarch, um, which is this, that beautiful piece of wisdom, I think I quoted in one of the 
yeah, in the group today. Uh, there's this one line um, that says, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. And that made a lot of sense to me. So I decided every time I saw a judging mind, uh, a judging thought, I would just tack on the burdensome practice of judging, right? just to kind of remind myself, oh, this is just exhausting yourself needlessly. And I'd go into a mealtime particularly. That was, that was where it really ran wild. And my mind, I'd see my mind going, you know, look how much they put on their plate. You know, the burdensome practice of judging, you know. Oh my God, I dropped my fork. The burdensome practice of judging, you know. And I'd go through a meal, honestly, 50, 75 times. It was like I was eating food, but mainly I was saying the burdensome practice of judging. And after a while, you just had to laugh because it was just so absurd and out of control. Try laughing makes a big difference because laughing is another way to not take it personally. <clears throat> another source of support in the judging mind is the refuges that Jill gave last night. Refuge in the Buddha, Refuge in the Dharma, refuge in the Sangha. Refuge in the Buddha, both the historical figure who said and saw and showed it's possible, it's really possible to free the mind, and refuge in the Buddha right inside of you. When you're taking refuge in the Buddha, you're seeing you too have the potential to wake up and you are nourishing that seed of awakening, the bodhicitta, as it said, that's right inside of you. It's very important to see that you have this possibility of awakening. It's all about practice, but it's right in there. There's a Buddha right in there. As that Nyosho Kempo quote said, taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in the truth, the way things are. And when we're taking refuge in the Dharma, the way I see it, the way, what it means to me is that life is giving me what I need right now to wake up. And so when I see clearly, oh, that's what the mind is doing. It's like it's giving me an opportunity to wake up from my sleepwalking. As humbling as, as it can be, this process is seeing the whole picture and being able to hold it with love and, and wisdom. Robert Bly has this quote. Robert Bly is this uh, well-known American poet. He says, every part of our personality that we do not learn to love will become hostile to us. Not that I love my pettiness or my insecurity, but that we, uh, we need to embrace that. We need to hold that. Just like a parent loves the whole package of their child, not just when they're be behaving well. 
even when they're having a tantrum, it's okay, dear. And what they need is just to be held and loved. So taking refuge in the Dharma, seeing, oh, okay, I'm here to wake up and, the, and life and what it shows me will help me. And then taking refuge in the Sangha, in the like-minded friendship that we all share. We're not alone in this. We're doing this together. And many people have walked this path over centuries and have found that it works. So these are some other supports in that. What really you're seeing is underneath that comparing mind, there's really a goodness and a beauty that can hold it. And that's, that's the deal. You see, oh yeah, there's this, there's that. Oh gee, that's there. Yeah, there's, that's my personality and, and all of that. But there is something much bigger that can hold it all. And uh, that's what we're getting in touch with. So I'll close with a, with a poem. This is called Birthright by uh, Dana Falls, who's a a favorite poet of mine. She says, Despite illness of body or mind, in spite of blinding despair or habitual belief, who you are is whole. Let nothing keep you separate from the truth. Your true nature illumined from within, longs to be known for what it is. Undying, untouched by fire or the storms of life, there is a place inside where stillness and abiding peace reside. You can ride the breath to go there. Despite doubt or hopeless turns of mind, You are not broken. Goodness surrounds, embraces, fills you from the inside out. Release everything that isn't your true nature. What's left, the fullness, light, and shadow, claim all that as your birthright. So let's just sit for a moment and then we'll have a walking period.
you for your attention.